is time to put away the bias, the lies, and deceit and bring forth real talk from real people about real news. Providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint This Sunday. Welcome to the Weekend News Magazine, Viewpoint This Sunday. I'm Alana Friedman, and I'll be your guest host today, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. America is in the middle of an economic crisis, my friends, and the trouble touches just about everyone and everything that is happening in our country today. Prices are going up. The cost of gasoline and diesel has almost doubled. The stock market is plunging. The price of gold and silver is stagnant. And the Fed just raised the benchmark interest rate by the largest percentage since 1994. The hardest part is that the soaring prices hurt the people who can least afford it. So how did we get here? And how long will it take before we'll be able to find our way back into an economy that makes sense? With me today is Harry Dent, economic forecaster and New York Times best-selling author. He is also the editor of his free newsletter, H.S. Dent Forecaster, which you can find at harrydent.com. Harry has built his career on analyzing economic trends around the world and using his analysis to provide insights on what to expect in the future. Harry has been able to predict these with amazing accuracy. So welcome to Viewpoint, Harry. Nice to be here, Alana. It's good to have you. You know, Americans are now facing trends that frighten them. And soaring inflation is just one. These trends are occurring in just about every aspect of their lives. And my question is, how did all this happen so quickly? Well, you know what, what really happened, Ilana, and I was predicting this way back. The greatest boom in history was when the baby boom generation entered the workforce in mass starting in 1983 and drove the biggest boom in history as they spent more money and raised their kids and bought their houses, which everybody does, into age 46, 47 on average, into 2007. So we had the great boom. When I was forecasting that in the, in the 80s and early 90s, people said, Harry, you're crazy. We're a has-been country. Japan and Asia are going to have our lunch. And I'm like, no, we're the one that has the biggest baby boom in the world. And we're going to see the greatest boom in history. And it's going to be global, too. And that happened. But the problem is when we went, predictably, 2008 into the deepest recession we had seen since the early 80s and then way back to the uh, Great Depression, what happened then is central banks panicked. And they just printed tons of money. And they've been printing money. They thought, okay, the, the Fed printed one trillion in 2009 in response to that downturn. And, and that wasn't enough. So they kept printing and kept printing. Well, you know, $10 trillion later, um, they're still printing money. And in COVID, they printed the most ever and then added to the $5 trillion in, in money printing, which they've been doing. That was just the biggest in the last two years because of COVID. And then they added $5 trillion in fiscal, which is Put those two together, it's 50% of GDP. It was an overreaction. So that's why we're getting inflation suddenly. They've been printing money a long time and we haven't gotten inflation because inflation trends have been weak and weak. Another indicator I have, workforce growth. Um, so, so we now have suddenly high inflation 
but still slow growth because the baby boom peaked a long time ago in 2007. The millennials have not kicked in with their spending wave yet, which will be 2024 forward. So we're in this in between where we have high inflation from overstimulus, but still slow growth because consumers are spent out. And that means they have to tighten. And I'm telling you, Alana, you cannot tighten in this economy. It's already been overstimulated now since 2009 for 14 years. People have refied three times and gotten a bonus there. You know, interest rates are two to three points lower than they should be. They're getting bonuses. The baby boomers were done in 2007. Millennials don't take us up into a positive fundamental trend again till 2024, 25. And so here we are in this conundrum where nobody knows why, except I would say I do, because <laughs> I'm looking at the demographics, why it's so hard, why the economy is so weak. Just think of this real quick, Don. $10 trillion in two years, half of our GDP. We should be growing at 20%, okay? Yes. But we're not because everything has been overstimulated. Consumers have overspent now for a long time. So you basically have a debt economy. And I'm always asking, why doesn't some economist other than me ask, how could we have so much stimulus and then the economy keeps flopping back over? And the answer is, it died in 2008, and it doesn't come back to life till 2024. We've been living only on stimulus, and stimulus has diminishing returns like any drug. I call all this money printing and now fiscal stimulus, it's, this is like a, a financial drug. And anybody that takes a drug needs more and more to keep the high going until they're taking so much that they collapse or die. And that's where we're at. The economy's collapsing Right after they just $10 trillion of stimulus, 50% of GDP. And GDP right now, by the Fed's own model, Atlanta GDP model, the best model they have, is back at zero growth. How do we get out of this, Harry? We need to shake this stuff out so we can grow again when the millennials come and start spending money. Even when the millennials start spending, we're not going to be able to grow because we haven't washed all this bad debt out so of our economy. And that's what recessions do. Recessions are not bad for the economy. Recessions are not bad for the economy. Can you explain that, Harry? Yeah, okay. Okay, the thing, I'm, I'm a person and I, you know, I'm, you know I, I wake 16 hours a day and sleep eight. I don't quite sleep eight, but let's <laughs> I get that. So what do you think? Okay, you think, well, gosh, if I just didn't sleep so much, I could be awake more and do more and make more money and have more fun, right? No! <laughs> we sleep for a reason. All types of stuff happens in sleep. You rebalance all this sort of stuff and blah, 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 and dreams and give it a psychological stuff. Your body repairs stuff. That's what, when, when you're sleeping and not active, the body can do a lot of repair and maintenance. That's why we sleep. We have booms. And booms, when things are growing and, and new technologies and a new generation's getting older and they're spending more money, that's great. Boom. But in the bust, we weed out all the weak economies, all the failing technologies, all this sort of stuff. We create efficiency. So the booms expand, the downturns create new innovations, and then the next boom expands those innovations. So you need this pause. You need to be growing and growing, and then you need to slow down and, and readjust everything, restructure everything, get rid of bad debts, failing companies, and make way for the new. And the, and the central banks, think their stupid job 
is to keep the economy growing at three to four percent a year with zero to two percent inflation and never have a recession. You know what that tells me, Alana? They don't understand even Econ 101. <laughs> Everything in life grows and rests. Our sleep cycles, every cycle, every cycle has expansion and then restructuring and retrenchment. It's part of life. It's what makes life continue to innovate and grow. If we stayed in a boom forever, we wouldn't have one honest, innovative company left on the entire earth. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by your analysis because I'm not an economist, that's for sure. But I, I'm not either. That's how come I can figure this stuff out. Okay, fair enough. I would have taken economics as a major, which I started at and quit right away. I wouldn't have had a chance at what I've come up with. Okay, well, that makes sense. And uh, what I have, have done all my career is use trend analysis to be able to forecast what is most likely to happen, but in a totally yeah. different sphere. I've been, wor I've been working mostly in technology and in intelligence. So that, that's a whole different ball of wax. But what I'm, my question to you is this. Uh, it seemed to me that during the period from 2017 to 2021, in spite of, of COVID, we were in a period of, of, of reasonable growth. In fact, some, some people would say it was exceptional growth. And then in 2021, there was a, a huge change in policy and everything started, seemed, it seemed to me that everything started to go downhill pretty fast. Am I right or, or am I missing something? Yeah, the question is, what's the growth coming from? The boom, which I, I forecast mid to late 80s, I was the first one to say, people were saying the U.S. is dead, Japan and Asia is going to take over the world. I said, yeah, they're growing. Yeah, they're coming up. We have the best baby boom in the world, and we're going to see the greatest boom we've ever seen, even though Asia is rising. And I said it right from the beginning. It starts in 1983, and it, and it peaks at the end of 2007. That's when the last of the peak baby boomers will be in their peak spending, and then the Generation X will be lower numbers to go in that peak spending, slow us down until the millennials. I had this forecast way back in the, in the, in the 80s, okay? And yeah. all of it happened until 2008 and 9, when the economy went down so hard, because I used to say, 2008 is going to be like 1930. And guess who the Fed chairman wow. was in 2008? Yeah. Ben Bernanke. Guess what his thesis was for his PhD? The Great Depression. So he saw 2008 and he said, oh, my God, 1930. We can't let this happen on my watch. And he printed the first trillion. Well, yeah. we've been printing ever since. So you can, the, the growth was natural. Baby boomers enter young, unproductive. They get more productive. They earn more money as they age and have kids and advance in their careers. I'm the one that charted out back in the early 80s, the spending cycle of the average family in other workforce, age 20, spend the most money in your entire life at age 46, now 47, and then plateau for years and then decline into death and then die and go back to zero. That's the most important cycle in our economy. It's not taught anywhere in economic books. I came up it on my own, studying trends for my venture kind of clients back in the early 80s when I left the Fortune 500 because it was so boring as, as a, a, a consultant with Bain and Company, great <laughs> company, Bain and Company, but the clients were boring. Firestone Tire, you know, how boring is that, you know? And, and I started working with entrepreneurial companies that were doing new things and, and, and appealing to the young baby boomers back there in the 80s, a whole new generation 
which was coming, just entering the workforce and just starting their spending cycle. And my research got me to look at those baby boomers. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, we know with, with modern technology exactly when they're going to spend money. Nobody thinks it exactly into the workforce 20, spend the most 47, plateau into 54, decline into debt. So I applied that. I call I, I generate this thing. All I did was move the birth index forward for 46 years back then. Now it's 47 for the peak in spending of the average person. And the only and the hard adjustment I had to make, which wasn't that hard, but it took some work. I had to adjust in the immigrants past and forecast because immigrants come in on average at age 30, but peak numbers at age 23. So I could take those immigrants and factor them in like when they were born, just like they were baby boomers now that they're here. And that's and so I could say, OK, here's the people going to spend more money in this this, you know, age 20 to 46, 47 year run. And you put that lag with that birth index immigration adjusted and tells you when the economy is going to boom and bust almost 50 years in advance. Alana, you know, any economist that will make forecasts 50 years advance with any accuracy, I predicted the top in 2007 the natural boom without all this endless stimulus back in the early 80s. Wow. But this simple logic. People know caveman enter workforce age 20, caveman eat most bones and meat age 46. That's simple. Okay, so let me let me throw a, 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 a monkey wrench into the future because we're going through things now that we have never experienced before. One is massive immigration that is essentially uncontrolled. Um, the second... But, but, but immigration is easy to track, and once an immigrant comes in the economy, I can predict their impact just like somebody born here. Even, even the kind of immigration we're having now in the millions? Yeah. Okay. It's still All a right. tiny percent in any year, uh, and, and immigrants come in earning and spending less than the average person. But guess what? They grow more. You, well, you go halfway around the world to get this country and risk your life to get in here, even particularly if you do it illegally. Yeah. You're not going to sit on your on, on your buns and do nothing. And I would take an immigrant over the average person any day of the week. Okay. All right. Well, one of the things that we're going to be talking about later in the, in, in the second section of the show, the second half of the show, is is the the makeup of the immigrant population that's coming in and and a, a, a huge proportion of those are unaccompanied males they call them unaccompanied children because they're under 18 but they're not children and they come and and many of them are are joining they're they're being shipped to various parts of the country various cities and uh, and they're joining gangs when they get here and so i'm wondering if that doesn't um Perhaps Elon, I'm the copy there. Pardon? I know that happens. That is not the typical immigrant period. If somebody's telling you that, they don't know their new you know what from you know what, okay? I'm yeah, well, that's that, that typical comes from immigrant the, is not a government some agency. Yeah. Shipped from Mexico to sell drugs in Ohio. I'm sorry. It's not. I've studied these people. Okay. They're not. They are more motivated. Like I say, I would take over over Homer Simpson, the a really average American, and they're they're one of the most productive workers in the world, by the way, on average. I would take the penniless immigrant any day because they're going to come in, work harder, scrape harder, and advance faster. They may start 
at 10,000 income and go to 40 instead of starting at 25 and go to 60, but they're going to go there faster and they're going to work harder and they're going to innovate more. And, and a surprising high percentage, I don't have that number on me right on hand, but you look at history of, of breakthrough innovations have come from immigrants. It, it That's is, correct. It is yeah, the I hungry that. people that innovate, the hungry people that grow the most. Okay, so let me ask you another question then. We've just been through two years of pandemic, of COVID, and it has certainly disrupted our society in a, in a big way. The pandemic has caused a tremendous amount of disruption in our society. How does this impact the trajectory that you see in terms of the economy? Well, you know, if it caused unemployment disruption to go up to 10%, it'd be a negative. You know what unemployment is? About the lowest it's ever been, 3.6%. We don't have enough workers. You know what partly happened? COVID hit and, and 3 million people dropped out of the workforce and a million of them just never came back. They're like, you know, yeah. I'm 58 anyway. I'm going to retire in a few years anyway. And, and, and the government just gave me too much benefits. That's why I don't like overstimulants, okay? It causes people to do the wrong thing. We have very low unemployment. Um, so, so disruption to me is a good term. Only through disruption do innovations happen. They come more in downturn. They come more when people are challenged. People don't innovate when life is kissing their butt. They don't, nobody does hardly. So, so, so people that say boom is good, bust is bad. No, you can't have booms without bust, okay? You can't have growth without slowing. You can't have innovation without challenge. Innovation doesn't come when people are being nurtured. And, and that's why the, the mother and the family tends to be the nurturer. That's good, you need nurturing. But the father tends to say, you gotta do something or I'm gonna kick your butt. And that's, <laughs> that's why you have both booms and busts father and mother, male and female, you go on, you know, everything. Inflation is not a bad thing. Inflation is a sign that we're running out of supply and we need to reinvest in new business methods or new resources or whatever. And that causes investment and that causes inflation to come back down. And then you grow with higher productivity from all that investment and stuff. So none of these things, people, what people want is the same thing economists want and they're all wrong. You can't have an economy that grows three to 4% like a machine, never takes a break, never has a recession, and ever be productive too far in the future. It's not how natural. Machines can do that. We are not machines. Our economy is not a big machine. It's a dynamic, innovative, equilibrium environment. It's not something that can be, and economists are trying to turn it into machine, and they ought to all be fired. All these Fed chairmen and stuff should be fired. Look at, look at every Fed chairman you can remember. Does any one of them look like they ever had sex or run a business? One of them. <laughs> Academics, all of our economists. Yeah, they don't do what you do. So how are they going to understand the economy, which is driven? That was the breakthrough in my work, Alana, in the early 80s. I realized for the first time, it's the spending cycle of the average everyday person, which they're the most of, that actually drives our economy. Innovations are driven by 1% to 2% entrepreneurs, which, which if they succeed become very rich, but 9 out of 10 of them fail miserably. Right. Okay, that's a whole other thing. The average person's life cycle is what drives our economy. Booms and busts every 40 years. Let me just 1942 to 68, boom. And stock market adjustment inflation, 69 to 82 bust, 
1983 to 2007, boom. And ever since, now we got the stock market at major new highs, but only because they poured $10 trillion into the economy and now five, five, another $5 trillion in fiscal. They've poured money, fake money in, that makes people spend more short-term and feel better. But so is that not like a drug? I, I tell you something, somebody, you're feeling down, I can get you up. Heroin, let's see, cocaine, uh, <laughs> half a pint of vodka. I can get you feeling good. What happens after that wears off? Yeah. You feel worse. That's artificial. Artificial stimulation does not work. Being productive, having good relations, living a good life with friends and family, that's what makes people happy, okay? Not having fake friends, not, you know, and the economy grows because people have to have a balance of nurturing, a stable environment to work in, but enough challenge that they have to grow and innovate in their companies. And I'm telling you, if we never had a recession, the economy be dead. And oh, I got an example, Japan. Remember Japan? Who were kicking our ass? And, yeah. and, and looked like they were gonna become the number one country in the world, which demographically was impossible just by number of people and age of people, but everybody thought that. What happened to Japan? They'd been dead since 1989. They died. And you know what? They, they've stimulated more than anybody. It doesn't work long-term. It only works short-term. So that's what happens. There's natural growth and there's natural decline, and they both have a role. You cannot have an economy with no recessions. I know everybody wants it, but, but grow up. Only a six-year-old would say, Mommy, Daddy, why can't we grow and everybody love each other and never have fights or wars? You know, that's what a six-year-old would say. Let me ask you something then. Uh, you have said that this recession that we are in or getting in now is going to last through, you said, 2024? Is that right? Okay. The, the what happens next? downturn. Yeah. Okay. Again, go back to 40-year to cycles, okay? Boom from the early 1900 to 1929, collapsed. Late 29 into mid-42, the stock market was down for like 13, 14 years. Okay, so typical cycle, generation cycle, 40 years, 25, 26 years up, 14, 15 years down. Okay, that's a typical cycle. This cycle, the down cycle, we've been in. They've just been printing money to cover up. We should have been in a slow cycle from 2008 through about 2023 and then the next boom cycle with the millennials and they're not nearly the size of the baby boom generation relatively but the next boom should have been from 2000 say 24 on so we're still in that down period it's been enhanced massively by just basically printing money and throwing in the economy and making it better than it would be but it's artificial it's not real and and there's my i'll tell you my favorite indicator is called money velocity Dr. Lacey Hunt, 20 years ago, introduced, well, he I knew about it. He explained it to me. It shows how productively you're investing the money because money turns over and keeps getting reinvested profitably if you are. If it doesn't, money velocity drops. Since 1997, right in the middle of the tech bubble, right when we started all this bubble stuff, bubble is a sign that you're not investing money productively. People are just speculating, okay? Ever since then, money velocity has dropped 55% more than it did from 1917 to 1932 from the roaring 20s into the Great Depression crash. This is the sign that would tell you we're not investing our money. Why? Because printing money and making it easy 
causes people to throw money away. You give people money, they win a lottery, what do they do? They give it to their friends, they blow it out their ass, they become an alcoholic, I don't know, you know, you know what people do. It becomes easy, it goes easy. That's why you have challenge and nurture, boom and bust. You have to have a good recession at least every 10 years. I would rather, Ilana, see two recessions every decade, every four or five years, smaller ones than one big one. We've gotten one big one um, in the last several decades, but this one, uh, 2020 to 23 is the, is the weakest period in this demographic cycle. And this is when we should be seeing a much bigger downturn instead of stocks to new highs. But finally, diminishing returns, the stimulus is not really working. And again, the Fed's own GDP estimate is zero right now. People saying, oh, we could have a recession a year from now. That's what economists are saying. Why? They don't know anything. <laughs> they don't live in real life. We're already at zero by the Fed's own model. Is anybody telling people we're at zero after printing and, and stimulating $10 trillion in the last two years because of COVID? Overreaction to COVID. Look, COVID is a short-term crisis like the, the Spanish flu in 1918 to 20. It comes, it lasts a couple of years, and then it disappears on its own when it infects everybody, okay? Why would you print? $10 trillion, print five and fiscal five over a short-term crisis and not think that when that crisis is over, which it is now pretty much, you wouldn't cause high inflation. This economy is going to weaken. We've been living only on stimulus, not natural, generational productivity, hard work, earning more, raising kids, all the things that are good for the economy. It's been all stimulus since 2008. So here's my last question, Harry. Are we going to get out of this or are we going to wind up like Japan? So you take away the stimulus and you got the dead economy I've been talking about. It died in 2008. It's going to be reborn in 2024. I'm predicting 40 to 50% of housing. I'm predicting 86% for the S&P 500, 92% for the NASDAQ. And for good old coin, 95% drop back to three to 4,000, 7,000 at best. Well, it looks like we're in for some belt tightening, but on the other hand, I think we've gotten a very clear picture of what we can reasonably expect in the next couple of years, and I don't see any reason why that shouldn't help us a lot. A big thank you to Harry Dent, and remember listeners, you can find Harry's free newsletter at harrydent.com. And now we're going to take a quick pause, but stay right there because we'll be right back with more Viewpoint this Sunday. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. There are microbes in the air and they're in your house and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. This is a mobile fogger that uses a unique technology to give a non-toxic dry mist to cleanse the air and cleanse your rooms of microbes, whether they be bacterial, fungal, or viral, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and use the promo code OUTLOUD for a discount on your purchase of the model and get going with a cleaner house as there could be more microbes on the way 
we're concerned about not only the current pandemic, but future ones. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to Viewpoint This Sunday. I'm Alana Friedman sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. In the first part of the program, we talked about the economy and what we can expect in the coming months. Now, I want to shift gears and talk about the wider world, the problems we're experiencing on our southern border and how they're affecting life in America. And then we'll move around the world to Ukraine and get some insight into the war there and what our responsibilities are as Americans as the Ukrainians fight for their lives and their country. Joining the program now is Del Wilbur. Del is no stranger to America Out Loud. 
He is a frequent contributor to our programs and the author of some very incisive columns on the world today. Dell formerly worked undercover for the CIA and has served overseas in Eastern and Western Europe and in the Middle East. Today, he is a consultant in counterterrorism and writes excellent columns for America Out Loud. You can read them on our website, and I urge you to do so. Dell, welcome to Viewpoint this Sunday. Thank you. It's good to be on with you. Dell, you and I have been in the intelligence business for quite a long time. So we take a view of the world that is somewhat different from the way the, well, for example, the mainstream media looks at it and reports on it. In fact, they frequently seem to be just making it up as they go along. For us, we need to get the facts right. Why, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think that uh, much of, of the American public in that is, you know, really uh, doesn't have a good understanding of what, what the intelligence community does and what it's all about. You know, I think they, they some of it is, is colored by, you know, the television and movies that they've seen where they, the, the good guys always win and the problem is always solved within an hour or two. And, and you know, that's not, re- you, you and I both know that's not reality, that intelligence is not, a, it's not a science. You know, it's more of an art in a sense that you take information from a lot of different streams and, and you try to piece it together. It's like doing a puzzle, a piece here, a piece there. And seldom do you ever end up with a complete picture. But you take uh, all of those puzzle pieces that you've put together that may have missing pieces, and you you make your best determination as to what that information is telling you. And that's, you know, that's the reality of it. It's not, uh, it's not like the movies at all. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that because one of the things that I've been trying to explain to people for a long time is that we're frequently working with insufficient information. We don't have all the pieces, and we still have to find some answers, even with incomplete information. And that's that's a big part of the intelligence world. Let's talk about some of the issues that we're facing here in the United States. One of the most serious problems today is the trouble at our southern border and what the millions of illegal immigrants that Washington has invited into our country at a rate that we have never seen before, what it is doing to us. Aside from the sheer number of people that this represents, and at this point we're talking about millions of people, it also represents a huge spike in illicit drugs, human trafficking, and disease. Dell, what is this doing to America? Eventually, it's going to overwhelm our our uh, social services because, you know, the sheer numbers that are coming in, America is not going to close our eyes to these people. I mean, we're not going to have them uh, sitting on our streets with, with a tin cup in it. I mean, the services that are intended, really, for our American citizens that are going through difficult times and need some public assistance or whatever – uh, are simply going to be overwhelmed by all of these new people that are coming in that are going to have to be taken care of. That's one thing that I, I don't think people are are understanding of is that the sheer numbers are going to over overwhelm uh, our existing social services, and you know that's going to be uh, uh, it's going to impact uh, regular Americans who who are also in need of those services. One of the things we are seeing now is a dramatic uptick in crime. 
Is this, in part at least, due to this flood of new illegal immigrants into this country? Well, certainly it's contributing to it. The other thing that people need to to understand and be concerned about is is the uh, the fact that with our borders as porous and, and as easily crossed as they are right now because of the just the, the massive influx of people coming in that is distracting Border Patrol and ICE from their from their their jobs. Uh, you know, we have to be concerned about all of the potential terrorists that are entering our country. And just today was a report that just this year, Border Patrol has identified 50 Five zero terrorists who are people who are on the terrorist watch list who have been encountered uh, at our border. Now, over 400,000 people are listed as gotaways. And how many of those are terrorists? You know, one thing that I think probably a lot of Americans aren't aware of is that Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization, has a very significant presence in, uh, in Latin America and in South America. And Hezbollah certainly is no friend of the United States and, uh, and are aware of the, the, uh, the ability to cross our border easily. You know, it's been, it's been suspected for, for quite, quite a number of years that there are uh, terrorist sleeper cells in the United States that are just waiting basically for the word to, to begin their activities to that. And, you know, I, I often, uh, I give presentations to that on, on terrorism, terrorism, terrorism awareness. And one of the cases I mentioned is the Zen Issa case, which happened in St. Louis, the heartland of America, and how Zen Issa was a terrorist cell member for Abu Nidal, which at, at this time when, when this incident happened, Abu Nidal was probably, uh, this preceded al-Qaeda, and Abu Nidal was the, the primary or the main uh, terrorist organization uh, conducting operations in the world. And he was, uh, it's a long story, but he was involved in an uh, honor killing of, of one of his daughters. And he had been under surveillance by the FBI, but they did not have active surveillance going on. It was one of those situations where they would pick the tapes up after a period of time and send them to the uh, to the translators. And as they were doing this, they discovered the murder that took place inside his, his residence. You know, so this this all came out though that he was a terrorist cell member operating right in St. Louis, and that's not unique. Uh, I guarantee you, that's going on in other parts of the country, and. It's a concern, and it should be a concern to all Americans. I'm glad you mentioned Hezbollah, because they have been deeply involved in both Central and South America, particularly in the tri-border area of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay, where they have taken over a large portion of land and created a multi-billion dollar money laundering and drug trafficking operation, and where they partner with drug cartels and other terrorist organizations and which makes them a credible threat to the United States. Absolutely. I, I uh, worked for a couple of years, uh, a number of years ago, uh, at a facility down in El Paso, Texas called EPIC, which is an abbreviation for the El Paso Intelligence Center. And one of the, one of the things that, uh, that was noted, uh, we, we attended daily briefings there where all of the different uh, entities that were involved in 
our effort to uh, understand and combat the drug cartels and other criminal activity that was taking place on the border. But they would, would conduct daily briefings and they would always discuss the number of people who were captured from, quote unquote, countries of interest. These are countries like, uh, well, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. And it always gave, gave one pause to think, well, let's, you know, they caught these ones, but how many did they not catch? And, and that are, you know, roaming our country now and hooking up with other, uh, like I said, either sleeper cells or, uh, and, and, and my, you know, my experience tells me that with these people that just cross the border with no plan or with no individuals already inside the country that they could make contact with. Uh, they had to have some type of network in place that these people could could cross our border and hook up with, you know, with uh, their colleagues. So uh, it, it, it should be a concern to all Americans that you know, we are setting ourselves up for something uh, significant to happen again. It could be as significant as 9-11 was. And with the, the way things are right now, uh, you know, I think it's just a, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. I agree with that, Dell. I think we are far more vulnerable than we want to believe. And another major terrorist attack may be a lot closer than we think. And here's another serious situation that our open borders are creating. It's the flow of deadly drugs into our country. In one year between 2020 and 2021, Customs and Border Protection seized over 11,000 pounds of fentanyl. Now, think about that for a moment. A standard fatal dose is about 2 milligrams. Tiny. So 11,000 pounds is enough to kill every American seven times over. The thing that, that, that should concern people about that is that fentanyl, you know, there, there was, uh, I can't remember the exact, figures so so you know i'm sure someone will out there will correct me if i'm wrong but but there was a time when back during the the cocaine heyday you know cocaine and heroin heyday in america when the transfer of those drugs onto our currency was it it, it was it was something that was just understood all of our money that was in circulation if if it was tested would probably come back with uh, minute quantities of heroin or cocaine on it just because of the, the cash transactions that took place between the drug dealers and their customers, and then that money going back into circulation. That is a bigger concern now because the amount of fentanyl that can be a fatal dose is so, uh, it's, it's microscopic in a sense. And, you know, that's getting into every aspect of our life. It's, it's on our currency. It, it is probably uh, touching uh, just just every or, or many, many things that uh, uh, that Americans are coming daily contact with. And it's so it's a major concern having that that influx of fentanyl into our country, along with the other drugs like heroin and and, uh, and cocaine. You know, we could talk about this subject for a long time because there are so many aspects to the implications of our open southern border. But I'd like to switch over to another subject that is consuming a lot of media right now. 
What is our responsibility as Americans to Ukraine in their war with Russia? And what is the most likely outcome in that war? Many conservative voices are coming out against sending our billions of dollars for the defense of Ukraine. They say we need to keep the money here, but I don't think it's so simple. And I know it is to me because um, what, I, what I see uh, in the, the war between Russia and Ukraine is a replaying of something that has happened over and over again in human history, which is the genocide of one group of people by another. What Russia is doing to Ukraine is so criminal and the Ukrainians are continuing to fight with enormous courage. There are a lot of problems in Ukraine. They still have problems with corruption. They have problems with neo-Nazis. But what Russia is doing has been to completely annihilate and totally destroy whole cities. Dell, I'd, I'd really like to ask you what your take is on this war and where you think it's going. Well, I, I think... Uh, uh for one thing, Vladimir Putin is, uh, at this stage of the war, he's angry now uh, because he didn't anticipate that it was going to be such a, uh, a struggle uh, that, that he's encountered by the Ukrainians. Uh, I think in his mind, he was going to waltz right in just like the Soviet Union did in the past in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary. You know, uh, he was going to be able to waltz right in and, and in a matter of a few you know, days, uh, he was going to be in control of things. And as it turned out, that didn't happen. And, and Russia has, uh, has faced a, a significant uh, resistance from the uh, Ukrainian people. As you say, Ukraine has certainly has some issues that they have to have to deal with. I have defended or supported Zelensky uh, and, and, and his efforts to try to, uh, to stave off this Russian invasion. And I've had, you know, they're corrupt, you know, they've got neo-Nazis. And, 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 you know, my response to them is, well, show me a country really in the world that doesn't have internal issues, that isn't corrupt in some ways, that doesn't have despicable groups within. I mean, we, you know, we've got uh, the KKK, you know, in this country. We've got Antifa, uh, certainly elements of BLM and, and other uh, white supremacist groups in that. Uh, so we don't have, you know, how's that saying go? If you don't, don't uh, throw stones, if you live in a glass house, you know, and, and as far as corruption goes, you know, we, we had an election that certainly uh, there's evidence of, of a level of corruption in our, our election in 2020. And, uh, so, you know, for us to, to just, you know, uh, dismiss the Ukrainian people's right to, to exist, and exist not under the, the thumb of the Soviet Union by saying that they've got some internal problems is, you know, it's, it's not a fair assessment of what's going on over there. And we, we need to support them. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the Cold War. And we spent uh, over 50 or 60 years fighting Soviet domination of the world. And for us to just give up in, in that struggle now that, uh, that it's changed, you know, to a... Uh, uh, you know Vladimir Putin as a uh, as a dictator. He's he's less of a of a communist than he than he is a in his mind a Russian patriot. So what he thinks he's doing is 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 to to regain the glory 
of the Soviet Union or of Mother Russia uh, from the days of uh, uh, right after the the fall of the Soviet Union, when uh, the American politicians of that were literally gloating over over defeating communism without firing a uh, a single shot, and that severely stung Vladimir Putin. So he's, I mean, that's his aim. His purpose is to restore Russian glory. And uh, and he's taking it out of Ukraine right now because they've angered him. They've fought back. Yeah, how about that? There, there is another issue I think that that I've seen among conservative authors, conservative journalists, and and thinkers, people whom we respect uh, by and large. But they're saying that we should not be sending forty billion dollars of aid to Ukraine. That we should be keeping it here. But my view is is that we have ignored genocide for so long in so many places. We ignored the Holocaust and we ignored the genocide in Rwanda and so forth. We let it happen. And I think that it's time that we grew up and show our responsibility to stop genocide when we see it and when we are able to do something about it. What what do you think about this, Dell? Because I know a lot of really of people I respect don't agree with me. Well, we claim to be the beacon of freedom in, in the world and the leader in the world for, for pursuing freedom. And, and, and in, in fact, we have, as a nation, we have freed more people in the world than, than anyone else. But, you know, for uh, the argument that's being made that, you know, we need to keep our money at home and that is certainly a valid argument. You know, we're, we're going broke under the the spending of the current administration and everything and, and the wasteful spending and that that's that's been done over the years. But the bottom line is we have an obligation to to defend freedom and and, and freedom loving and freedom seeking people anywhere in the world. And you know, I, I it doesn't mean we have to put boots on the ground everywhere of our military and, and sacrifice our, our young men and women in the armed services. But indeed, sometimes that is called for. And we, you know, we have to be prepared as, as the nation that, as I said, is the beacon of freedom in the world. We have to be prepared to take what steps are necessary. And if that means giving up some of our, our treasure, you know, then we have to be prepared to do that. And I know that that's not popular, particularly in these difficult financial and economic times that we're in right now. But some things rise above that, and and we have to be prepared to meet those, you know, those obligations when that when when they do. Do you have an, any idea about where this war is going to go and how it's going to be resolved? Vladimir Putin cannot afford to give up and, and just pull his forces out. Uh, he has to have some face saving uh, outcome, otherwise. You know, he's going to find himself uh, uh, just like what happened to uh, Nikita Khrushchev so many years ago after the Cuban Missile Crisis when, you know, Khrushchev supposedly blinked. And, uh, you know, and then some sometime thereafter, all of a sudden, Nikita Khrushchev was no longer the Soviet premier. He was, you know, relegated to a, a dacha in the Russian countryside and, and soon forgotten. And uh, Vladimir Putin could face that same outcome if he just were to pack up and leave and, and, you know, declare victory and leave without any real victory. At the very least, he is going to uh, establish that land bridge that 
everyone has talked about that between Russia and the, uh, the Crimea. He is going to establish that and, and solidify those gains. I don't know that he'll stop there. Uh, if he feels that Western resolve is weakening in, in, in our support of Ukraine, then he may decide to go ahead and try to continue his, uh, you know, his uh, aggression and, and, and completely take over Ukraine, perhaps uh, Moldova, and uh, you know, reestablish a Russian uh, prominence in Eastern Europe. But he's not going to do that if, if the resolve remains for us, you know, for the West to uh, uh, to stand firm and you know in our support of Ukraine. So. I think he could view, you know, the land bridge to Crimea as a as his face saving way to get out, but it remains to be seen. Again, it's all going to be dependent upon what kind of resolve the West and, and the United States in particular shows. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is this is very much a question of saving face for him and maintaining his view of himself, which he considers to be fairly lofty. There is talk about two things. One is that he is a very sick man, that he is dying from cancer, and that therefore he may not have the constraints that he might otherwise have. And in his case, it may be more than just saving face, but actually leaving a legacy that is powerful in his mind, which might include doing something very dramatic and, in fact, drastic. Uh, as far as his health goes, I think that if Putin was as ill as, as some are saying that he is, and I think he'd already be gone. The people around him, the others who are vying for, who are holding senior positions or vying for senior positions, they would have already pushed him out. They would have used his his health as a as an excuse to uh, uh, to move him out. So I, I don't think his health uh, is as precarious as you know as uh, what's what's being discussed. I don't believe that he will resort to a tactical nuclear weapon that would create more resolve against him than what he's already facing, and I think that he understands that. Even if Vlad wanted to go out in a in a blaze of glory because his health was bad, uh, I don't think uh, his senior leadership, those around him, uh, his generals and that, would allow that to happen because they know the the, the cost would be too great uh, for for Russia and the the resolve would stiffen even further on the part of the West. So, uh, you know, an, uh, again, those you know my my feelings on the subject, but uh, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, that's more likely than, than not. That makes a lot of sense, Del. I'm wondering one more thing, which is that as, as this war goes on, instead of being a three-day war, it's, it's now four months and, and counting. My guess is that, and I've seen this before, that given the courage and the determination of the Ukrainian people, they are not going to give up no matter what. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely, I agree. Even if he, uh, Putin is successful at creating the land bridge from Russia to, to the Crimea, there's going to be guerrilla warfare that's going to take place. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are going to be a constant thorn in his side in that, that land bridge and along that land bridge. And that. So, so he'll have two, uh, 
uh, two options, basically. That's to either try to take over the entire Ukraine, uh, which I don't think he is, is capable of doing, uh, or he's going to have to, uh, you know, to deal with a, a constant situation where, you know, he has terrorist attacks uh, taking place in that land bridge area that he's he's created. And, uh, and it's just it, it's something he's going to have to to live with, uh, you know, uh, he'll pass that on to someone else when uh, when he finally uh, moves out of the, uh, you know, the chair of the, the prime minister. I think Zelensky is going to be the hero in this story and his people are going to follow him and not allow Russia to take over their country. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think Zelensky is, has, you know, proven himself to be a, uh, uh, an inspiring leader to the Ukrainian people. And, uh, you know, by his, his initial remark when, you know, when the Biden administration wanted to offer to, uh, to, to give him, uh, you know, uh, remove him from the country, uh, allow him to escape. His response was, uh, I need our ammunition, not a ride. And, uh, you know, I think that that, uh, that really, uh, like I said, he's been an inspiring leader to Ukrainians as well as to many, many other leaders and, and people in that part of the world and, and the rest of the world. Yes, he has. And I, I think that history will record that he was, was the hero of Ukraine in in times when it could have gone very very badly for them Dell, i want to thank you for being with us today oh it was my pleasure to be with you well my friends our time is just about out i'm alana friedman sitting in for malcolm out loud this has been viewpoint this sunday and remember it's time to get involved and it's time to get loud america